0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, the markets may be on the mend from pandemic lows, but many Americans are being left behind. Ryan Glover, founder of FinTech Greenwood, is working to eliminate the racial economic inequity in the U.S. And he's getting major banks to buy in.
2: This multi-generational wealth gap problem will take an all hands on deck solution Politicos
0: debate the Biden tax plan but it could be more about red and blue than dollars and cents Former White House chief of staff Mick Mulvaney.
3: Washington doesn't pay for stuff anymore taxes are about politics now they're about following through on promises made
0: And New York Congressman Tom Swasey
4: Progressive states like mine can't afford to lose the high-income, the moderate-income people that are leaving our state, leaving lower-income and moderate-income people behind to hold the bag.
0: Plus, it's a hard-knock life for a junior banker, so they say. 100-hour work weeks in pursuit of a $10 million per annum payout later in life could be worse.
5: You know, I used to walk to school 20 miles uphill both ways.
0: Those stories, but first, the IPO market is on fire, in a good way, mostly. And the AstraZeneca vaccine data roller coaster. It's Thursday, March 25th, 2021. Squawk pod begins right now.
6: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. Oh. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Wilfred Frost.
5: You gotta bring us the international perspective. What's happening? Uh, you know, I don't know. There's lots of stuff going on. You're here to bring us a global view, whether it's the Suez Canal, whether it's what's happening uh, in Europe with lockdowns in the UK. Or, you are or it's just not a, banks. There's just no banks. To for you to, the heat. or just well.
7: a nice focus view on the most important hour of the U.S. trading day. <laughs> <laughs> <The> clo- well, <laughs> I was going to
6: bring that up. Well, the the last six days in a row, we have seen the markets collapse during that last trading hour of the day. Yeah. So we're go, hoping Will. you bring a little more brightness here this morning.
7: Yeah. It's a little a little dour. I'm just delighted to be here.
4: We <laughs> like
5: are well, glad to have you. Come oh my on, God! He, smile. He, he, somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Come no, on, no. Wilf,
7: it uh, was where, just
5: it's, fine until I saw you, Joe. <laughs> oh, that's not very nice. After <laughs> <laughs> AstraZeneca releasing more data from its phase three COVID vaccine trial, uh, dropping the efficacy rate from 79 to 76. Meg Terrell joins us now with more on what Dr. Fauci uh, described this week. As an unforced error. Good morning, Meg.
8: Good morning, Joe. This was a seriously weird turn of events for AstraZeneca this week. Monday morning, we got the highly anticipated phase three results from its U.S. trial, 79% efficacy, which came in better than expected. But later that night at about midnight, Dr. Fauci's uh, institute released a statement saying the oversight board said those were outdated data. So now AstraZeneca has given us the updated results just two days later, and the numbers, they really didn't change too much. Now, 76% overall efficacy against symptomatic disease. The efficacy against severe disease stayed at 100%. Uh, In people over 65, it actually went up five points to 85%. Uh, and they did have a lot more cases to count here, um, 190 as of today's results, including 8 severe cases, strengthening that finding from 141 and 5 severe cases on Monday, guys. Um, You know, a lot of folks looking at this after seeing the kind of roller coaster we've seen this week and just saying, well, the vaccine looks good, but the communications have just been awful. Dr. Nahid Bedelia tweeting, quote, at this point, I'll just wait for the FDA submission packet just to avoid any more roller coaster rides. And guys, a lot of people will be looking forward to seeing those data when AstraZeneca files, which they had said would be in the first half of April with the FDA, then three weeks later, we should see FDA's analysis of those data. And we'll get to look at all of it at but this has just been a weird ride made even perhaps more weird by the fact that these updated data, they didn't really change that much, guys.
5: No. Three points is, uh, I mean, when you talk about 95 for Moderna and Pfizer, and then with you're already at 79, I don't know, people would still want Moderna and, and uh, Pfizer probably. And 79 to 76 doesn't change that. But they've had a, maybe, is this the only unforced error? Because we can think of about three or four other negative data points for AstraZeneca over the past three or four months, maybe they weren't all unforced.
8: Yeah, there, this has been a program that has gone through more ups and downs than we've seen with others, starting with when we saw the first late-stage clinical trial data, and there were two different sets of efficacy. One was 62 percent, the other was 90 percent, and it turned out one of those was in a group that had a mistaken dose. And so all of the data have been confusing, which was why we were so excited to see this US trial set, which was going to be much better organized. And then this sort of snafu happened where there's a clear dust up between the oversight boards, which which felt the data that AstraZeneca put out on Monday was outdated and perhaps even cherry picked. Um, Cherry picked to present an efficacy level that was only three points higher is a head scratcher. And I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out exactly what happened behind
7: the scenes there. Well, to that point, Meg, I mean, uh, there's been so many question marks uh, over people's trust in this vaccine, particularly in Europe. I guess the pressure on both regulators and, and the company to make sure they absolutely get this submission uh, and the decision about it right w- was higher than ever before. So if this was an intentional attempt to cherry pick, the, the responsibility on AstraZeneca for the error, unforced error there where, is, is, is enormous. But But if it was an accident... Is there a sort of sense that there's a bit of an overreaction and people should wait for the final decision and people should say, look, it's it's effective and it's safe. And that's what really matters. I mean, it, it feels like this was a, a, an AstraZeneca error in a way that over the last month, perhaps the commentary, particularly from European leaders, has been a little unfair on the vaccine.
8: Well, absolutely. The commentary from the public health world is that this looks like a good vaccine. And of course, it is being used around the world and is seen by many as the public health vaccine that will help the world get through this pandemic. They're planning on making 3 billion doses, making it available nonprofit. It can be stored in the fridge. There are a lot of good things about this vaccine. And for many countries, it is the only vaccine they've been able to access so far. So it's important a, that it works and that it's safe, and B, that there is trust in it. Um, the, com- the criticisms that really have been coming this week have been against AstraZeneca uh, for the communications here in the unforced error that Dr. Fauci talked about. But still, well, it's just really not clear what happened in terms of why there was this misunderstanding or disagreement with the oversight board that led to this very strange public statement from them.
6: Hey, Meg, I think that's part of the problem. I mean, the idea that we really need there to be trust, public trust in this vaccine so that it can help the entire globe get past COVID is incredibly important. But I was surprised by this latest, I don't know if you wanna call it a miscommunication or just a, a lack of openness. I mean, we had the US representative on this show and I asked him when the trial had taken place for these things, he didn't really answer the efficacy numbers that we've seen were based on the trials that were run when Bec- because as you mentioned things are changing here pretty rapidly in the united states in terms of the variants that that are running around here same story for the other companies that had run their trials earlier but those those trials were run seven to eight months ago
4: yeah once again that's that's uh, that's absolutely an, an excellent uh, question we, we know in, the, in 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 the united states as well that the uk variant is 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 growing very fast, and uh, so the analysis we are going to do once again is is to to test by, uh, and sequence by PCR uh, all the different variants of all the subjects uh, which were part of our study, and that will give us insight uh, how the efficacy will uh, uh, will uh, hold up against all those uh, all those variants. So there is a lot of work ongoing.
6: And that came after the weird way it rolled out, as you were mentioning a few months ago, with the different efficacy from a mistake that they made where they were accidentally giving people the wrong dose and it turned out to have a better um, efficacy with those people. I mean, the way we found out about that was, again, after we'd had someone on this show who, who didn't really mention any of those things. It was later in the day when one of the scientists said that this was just a lucky stroke of circumstances.
8: Yeah, and there was another example where remember AstraZeneca's trial here in the US was halted for 7 weeks after a safety issue it was ultimately decided it could keep going and that safety issue was not identified in these these results but the company's CEO on a private investor call gave more information about what happened with that halt in the trial than they gave publicly. And so there were a lot of those instances. And even on Monday, in a media call with reporters about these phase three data, three different reporters had to ask how many cases there were of severe disease in the trial, information that Ruud Dauber had given us on Squawkbox Box that morning. So the company was just sort of not forthcoming with those details, a lack of transparency that is leading to a lot more confusion than many would say would be the right path for this vaccine.
7: Mike Terrell, thanks so much for that. Some
5: banks continuing to try to capitalize on the Goldman analyst uh, revolt. First, it was Jeffries offering its its associates Peloton bikes. Then Citigroup calling for Zoom-free Fridays. Now Credit Suisse is joining the mix. The bank offering junior bankers A special $20,000 bonus, CNBC.com's Hugh Son was the first to report the perk. Hugh joins us now. Hugh, you look, you're you're in a great mood. Happy to be here. Good to see you. Happy to be with you, Joe. There you go. That's the way it should be. What's up? So, look, I mean, this is
1: an issue, right? Uh, You know, millennial disgruntlement on Wall Street. You know, they're not used to working 100-hour work weeks out of their parents' basement. So, you know, they're starting off from a, a point of complaint, which, you know, I'm sure... Really resonates with you, Joe. But you know they've they, they've decided money is the solution to the problem. And on Wall Street, as you know, money is the currency of value. It's the currency of worth. The size of your compensation package tells you how well you've done. So I think they're going to be pretty effective here. And I think this really shows. that Credit Suisse throwing money at the problem is that it's easier to do so than it is to fix the essential problem here, which is people are overworked. And why are people overworked? It's because the capital markets are on fire. IPOs are on fire. Tech, media, telecom in particular, those teams are on fire. And, you know, these people are the foot soldiers of the investment banking world. And when a deal comes in, you need your foot soldiers to be at the ready.
5: You know, Hugh, we've had you know, Jim Cramer talking about how excited he was when he was able to get a job at Goldman. And, and uh, you know, he it, it almost sounded like and I have a little affinity for it, almost sounded like, you know, I used to walk to school 20 miles uphill both ways when I, you know, hearing that kind of thing for how these Goldman guys should be. I want to someone wrote in a a Jeffrey Katzenberg quote, which I love. Uh, He had a very famous work ethic. He said, look, if you don't come to work on Saturday, don't even bother showing up on Sunday. And that's such a good uh, such a good line. These these young whippersnappers need to appreciate they're going to be set for life when they finally leave Goldman Sachs.
1: Joe, the recruiters I've talked to, the, the the investment bankers I spoke to who've been through this, uh, you know, this grind uh, say, you know, this is what they tell me. Where else in the world can you as a 22 year old make 150 or 200K? And Joe, that's not even really the real reason why they're doing that, because, you know, many people point out on an hourly basis, if you're working 100 hours a week, you're not really getting paid that much. The reason why they're doing this is because at a place like Goldman, they have a shot you know, it's it's basically a lotto ticket to eventually, you know, if they can make it up the process of associate analyst, VP, managing director and ultimately to partner. If they can make it to partner, they're set and they're making five million to ten million a year. So okay? so this is why the reason people go through this and put themselves through these painful, you know, hundred hour work weeks, it's a shot at making ten million a year in, you know, fifteen years, twenty years.
7: What I love on this, you is uh, not that we can really directly compare the individual stories across companies because uh, the conditions probably are different, but I'm, I'm sure people would rather get 20K extra than uh, not have to do video calls on, on a Friday. But uh, But if the 20K bonus is the answer to all of this, it kind of only goes back to confirm what the whole discussion is, which is that if you take one of these jobs, it's a trade-off of tough hours versus high pay, and it kind of doesn't really give credence to the legitimacy of being able to complain more broadly about the conditions. It's, it's a trade-off, which if you don't enjoy it, you can kind of leave, which is something we've been discussing, you and I kind of, all, all week. The other thing I just bring up on this, uh, which the, the, the extra 20K bonus point kind of brings into focus... All of these complaints coming out just after bonus time. Uh, And one wonders, therefore, with those original 13 Goldman Sachs junior bankers, whether if their bonuses had been a bit bit higher, whether any of this would have come out in in, in the first place. As as to point, again, to the fact this is not so much about the conditions. It's just about have they been paid enough this year. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. Last year was an extraordinarily successful year in capital markets. And maybe their bonuses only went up 50 percent and they were hoping they'd go up uh, more than that. And it was tough, even for a pure investment bank like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, to really pay many, many multiples, even if the capital markets divisions warranted that, because it's just uh, it's a tough thing to, to put out there in a PR sense in a, in a year that was so tough for other industries and other parts of, uh, of banking.
1: One thing I want to point out that I didn't say is, you know, and you alluded to this, Wilfred, is it is really unusual to be getting a bonus in the second quarter of the year. You've just received a bonus a few weeks ago for 2020 work, and yet you're going to get a bonus. And at Credit Suisse, also people are getting incremental raises on top of what they've already been awarded. If they worked last year, presumably they would get a raise. Now they're getting another one just a few weeks later. They're throwing money at the problem, and this is not out of the kindness of their hearts. This is because they need people to have their butts in their seats when these deals come in, and you know they need to retain their, their, their talent, and that's what they're doing, guys.
6: It's good to hear. Hugh, it's good to see you, too. We'll talk to you soon. SPACs seem to have gotten all the attention on Wall Street lately, but traditional IPOs are making a comeback. Leslie Picker joins us right now with a, with a look at what's driving the sudden rush of
9: activity there. Hey, good morning, good, Leslie. Good morning, Becky. IPOs are certainly back with a vengeance this week. The question, though, is whether anyone actually wants to buy them. There are six debuts today, six tomorrow, and others like Coursera, Compass, Coinbase, and Robinhood just over the horizon. Today's debuts have seen a boom to their business from the pandemic. Vizio makes TVs, more people are watching them, diversity makes cleaning supplies, more businesses are focused on cons- customer hygiene, and Cricket makes machines for craft More people have tapped their creative sides while stuck inside during shutdowns. But investors seem unimpressed. All three IPOs priced at the low end or below their respective ranges, a rarity in the IPO world. Last year, for example, only 7% of deals priced toward the bottom – of the range or below. And Leonardo DRS postponed its IPO after the Italian aerospace company reportedly was unable to get the valuation it wanted for its U.S. unit. But perhaps the recent surge in deal activity is also what actually has investors spooked. According to Renaissance Capital, this week was actually said to be the highest. It was said to um, make a 15-year high in deal activity Although with the postponement of Leonardo, that actually leaves the weekly count to just shy of the highest level since 2006, assuming the rest on the calendar do indeed price. But the buy side sentiment appears to be unwilling to meet that supply glut. Investors are being more selective, and recent IPOs have traded down in their debuts, including just recently cloud provider DigitalOcean and Oscar Health. So lots of questions to ask the CEOs of today's IPOs, diversity and Vizio. Leslie, that IPO chart, uh, the IPO ETF chart, looked an awful lot
6: like the SPAC mm-hmm. post-merger chart that we've been watching. I mean, it just seems like there's less interest
9: all the way around, that people are a little more cautious on all fronts. It's right. That's exactly right. The two are inextricably linked, because a lot of the same investors who are investing Investing in SPACs and are potentially underwater on some of those recent investors are the ones who would be buying shares of new issues like IPOs of operating companies as well. And so if you are uh, facing a bit of pain in a similar type of investment, new stock that's being issued into the market, you may be a little more uh, hesitant to put money to work in IPOs of operating companies.
6: Thanks, Leslie. Good to see you.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, the good, the bad, the red and the blue of this country's next tax plan. Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, on President Biden's tax plan.
3: The best kind of spending is letting people keep their own money because that's the most efficient. The next best kind of spending would be on infrastructure. The most inefficient is the wealth redistribution.
0: And New York Congressman Tom Suozzi.
4: There's good borrowing and there's bad borrowing. Good borrowing is borrowing for long-term capital improvements.
3: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
0: Welcome back to Squawk
5: Pot. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernel along with Becky Quick and Wilford Frost, who's in for Andrew this morning. The Biden
6: administration wants to hike the corporate tax rate to 28 percent. Analysts say 25 percent is more likely. Robert Frank joins us to explain why that small difference is a really big deal. Robert, good morning.
10: Good morning, Becky. And this really is the most important question for investors right now. Will it be 25 percent or 28 percent? Goldman Sachs, another analyst, saying the 25 percent is the most likely compromise Biden, of course, expecting to push for 28. Now, those three percentage points will make a huge difference to revenue, earnings, and jobs. A study by the Tax Foundation found that a 25% corporate rate brings in about $522 billion in extra revenue over the next decade. That's compared with $886 billion for the Biden rate. So that's a 40% less with the lower rate. When it comes to the economy, the lower rate reduces GDP by 0.4%. Biden's rate would double that to 0.8%. The drag on corporate earnings is three times lower with that 25% rate, 3% versus 9% for Biden's rate. And similar with incomes and job losses, where the hit is almost twice as large with that 28% rate. The tax foundation saying Biden's rate would cost about 160,000 jobs. The lower rate or the 25% rate would cost about 80,000 jobs. Bottom line here, a 25% rate would still bring a half a trillion in added revenue over time, but have about half the impact on the economy and incomes, Becky, which is why they're going to fight on both sides for every percentage point of this tax change, whether it's going to be 25 or 28.
6: When you say both sides, do you mean both sides of the Democratic Party? Because the way you set this up is it's either going to be 25 percent or 28 percent, and we'll see what happens. I mean, that that kind of sets it up for being 25 percent as a compromise, but that's a compromise within the Democratic Party, right?
10: Yeah. Th- th- this just assumes that they do it through reconciliation and they don't try to go bar- bipartisan route. I think the Republicans have been very clear that in th- at this point in the economy, they don't want any tax increase on companies which would filter down to as we just mentioned jobs so you're absolutely right this is the moderates versus the more liberal ring of of the democratic party and of course the white house white house biden since his campaign has been pushing for 28. all right let's welcome uh nick mulvaney who served in thanks robert who served in the trump administration as OMB own director
5: and white house chief of staff and his founder of exegis capital and new york congressman tom swazi a member of the Ways and Means Committee. And I bet you you two gentlemen both agree that, uh, I mean, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, and and the, I don't know, it's got to be paid for somehow, Mick, right? Is, is your view that we just cut, cut, cut and, and don't try to raise any revenue? Or do you have a, a, something you can accept somewhere in terms of raising taxes that, that will be the least harmful to the economy and, and what we're trying to accomplish
3: here? What's the way to do it? Um, uh, good morning, guys. The uh, you, Your premise is wrong. Your premise is that we have to pay for it, and Washington just doesn't look at it like that. You are going to hear some people say they're talking about raising taxes for the purposes of paying for something, but that's that's not right. I, I'm glad you guys hit on that, that that critical factor that this half a trillion dollars that this tax increase might raise if they get the, the biggest increase they possibly can is over 10 years. So you're looking at maybe 50 on the high end, 50 billion a year versus $6 trillion of additional spending over the course of the last year for COVID stimulus. Washington doesn't pay for stuff anymore. Taxes are about politics now as much as anything. They're about following through on promises made. Democrats ran on taxing the rich. They won. Good for them. That's how elections work out. So you're going to get taxes, but it's for political reasons, Joe, not for economics. Economics is detached from this at this point, unfortunately.
5: There's a lot of reasons, I think, that, that Democrats, uh, congressmen, uh, think about taxes. And it's not just even to pay for things. Sometimes it's about what they view as fairness and, and what probably critics would say is just pure income redistribution.
4: Well, I wanna make it clear that uh, I'm not gonna support any change in the tax code whatsoever, and Mick will be happy to hear this, unless there's a restoration of the SALT deduction. So let me just get that out there as a first step. That's a chit that I've laid on the table. Uh, We need to hear the president's budget coming out next Thursday. We need to hear his infrastructure plan coming out next Wednesday. Mick will tell you as the former budget director for President Trump, that you really don't know which way things are gonna go until you hear what the president lays out as his plan. Uh, And then we're going to respond to that. Uh, I think that there is a lot of consensus around 25 percent. You heard that uh, from the former chair of the uh, uh, Ways and Means Committee when he was advocating for it, a guy named Dick Camp. He was fighting for 25 percent. Obama was at 28 percent. And the Trump administration went down to 21 percent. Nobody really saw that coming. uh, And it didn't really make any sense. Uh, So we need to see what the president has to say. The bottom line is, is that there's good borrowing and there's bad borrowing. Good borrowing is borrowing for long-term capital improvements. That's what the classic definition of infrastructure is. I'm a, I'm a former CPA. When you borrow for some money, borrow money to pay for a road that's going to last for 40 years or a bridge or a sewer or a water distribution system or even broadband or schools or hospitals that people are talking about, that's good borrowing. That makes sense to pay for that over a long period of time. Interest rates historically the lowest they've ever been. Jay Powell has come out and said that he's going to keep interest rates down uh, for the foreseeable future.
5: I'm sorry to uh, to interrupt. I just got to go back to the salt uh, thing for a second. I just... On the one hand, when Democrats talk about fairness, they they, they they have a totally different notion, I think, of what fairness is than maybe other people. On, In other words, pay your fair share. And someone can be paying 60 percent in that. If they have a lot, that's Joe, still not enough because cap- it's not the fair. Just- but the salt, you're you're all you're doing is helping the top 10 percent. How You're a CPA. How much of the salt, if you repeal that, how much of that accrues to people that are in the top 10 percent? Ninety-five percent of it accrues not 95%. back to—
4: But a very high percentage. That's true. But it is. Why do you want to do that? You you define fairness as rich versus poor. I don't define it that way. It's not fair that you pay taxes on taxes you've already paid. It's not fair that the first deduction in the history of the United States of America was the SALT deduction, the state and local tax deduction. It was in place for 100 years and it was yanked away from states like mine, uh, causing people to leave my state uh, as well. Well, you're, you're basic- an
5: outlier in your party, fair. then, uh, Congressman. Mm-hmm. You're an outlier if you don't define fair the way that I define it, right, Mick? That's how I always hear about fair. It's, it's not
4: it, it, it. versus poor. It's about just basic fairness as to how the system works. You know, we've created enormous wealth in the United States of America, over the past 40 years, the Dow Jones has gone up 1,500 percent, 15 times. That's a good thing. But that money has not been shared with the workers. The GDP has gone up 800 percent in well, the same period. Well, of- getting rid of the right. salt's not right. going right. right. to help. That's going to make it worse. The, work that, that'll every day that'll well.
5: make it worse, Tom. Uh, uh, that's, that'll make income inequality worse, what you want to do. And I understand you're representing your constituents no that, that would benefit no from in it.
4: Progressive states like mine can't afford to lose the high income, the moderate income people that are leaving our state, okay. leaving lower income and moderate income people behind to hold, to hold the bag. It can't and be it, that while we're in old roads and old bridges and old sewers and old this and old that. We're subsidizing yeah. South Carolina and North Carolina and Florida and Arizona and other states that are building new roads and new bridges and new sewers okay. and new houses. High- hey, hey, Mick, yeah. Republicans are just as
5: bad because they this would help all their constituents. They don't want to do it because they don't want to. They don't want to help these I, profligate blue states that have spent too much money or something, I guess.
3: I was actually trying really hard, live? Joe, to, to agree with Tom because I like Tom. <laughs> Tom's, he's he's, he's uh, from Everybody uh, I've uh, talked uh, to is a great Democrat to work with. Um, you asked a, a question. He answered it and I didn't, which is what 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 kind of borrowing can you justify? And he's actually right. We we used to say when I ran the Office of Management Budget, the, the best kind of spending and I'm doing that because it's not really spending is letting people keep their own money because that's the most efficient. The next best kind of spending would be on infrastructure, because at least you get a return on that. And the worst kind, the most inefficient is the wealth redistribution. So if, if, if Tom is making the point that you should borrow money at low interest rates for long-term capital improvements, I can, I can agree with that. He lost me when he talked about North, uh, New York subsidizing South Carolina because states don't pay taxes and states don't get taxes. People pay taxes and people receive government benefits. And the rich people in New York do pay taxes and that money flows to poor people in other states. That's the way the Democrats wanted it. They're the ones that are just having to deal with it now. But anyway, the, the SALT deduction is, 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 is going to probably be changed. I think everybody can agree on that. Now that the Democrats are in charge. It will be interesting to see how they couch that because it does benefit uh, the richest Americans. Um, and how they mend it uh, or they meld it in with a tax increase on corporations. But let's be one th- perfectly clear, because I've heard this a lot, is that people talk about reforming SALT in order to reform taxes, in order to raise money. Changing the SALT deduction now, giving the deduction back to the highest earners is going to take money out of the Treasury and add to the deficit. Let's just be clear about that. That's fine if that's what you want to do, but you can't get around it by saying, well, we're going to raise money by going back to the way that SALT was. That's just not how the math works.
5: Thanks for being with us, Nick Mulvaney and Congressman Swazi. Thank you.
0: Next on SquawkPod, fintech startup Greenwood is taking aim at the racial wealth gap. How CEO Ryan Glover is disrupting the U.S. financial system by supporting Black and Latinx communities.
2: Our mission is simple, to create non predatory lending products, to help recirculate capital into the community, and to provide banking capital to deserving borrowers. We'll be right back.
11: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Wilfred Frost. He's in for Andrew. Here's Wolf.
7: Digital uh, bank startup Greenwood wants to help close the racial wealth gap. It aims to provide financial services for black and Latinx customers. Greenwood raised uh, $40 million from some of the nation's largest banks in its Series A, including Truist, Bank of America, PNC, JPMorgan Chase, Wells Fargo, MasterCard and Visa. Joining us now in a Squawk exclusive is Greenwood co-founder and chairman Ryan Glover. Very good to see you. Thanks for joining us morning, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, so so uh, who exactly is the target customer? Because uh, clearly with some of those backers, uh, one wonders whether those banks could have done something of this ilk themselves. So uh, are the target customers people that they're not reaching?
2: Sure. So just to be clear, Greenwood is a fintech neobank that provides digital banking services to the culture. Our target is the African-American community, the Latinx community and allies. Well, this summer, we will release our first product, um, be a, a digital uh, uh, depository and savings product, full service banking in your hand, Apple and Android Pay, uh, global ATM networks, two-day early pay, uh, peer-to-peer transfers. So yes, we're targeting the African-American Latinx community, um, along with uh, some of the top um, uh, um, financial um, institutions in the country that have um, uh, helped us raise a series A capital to the tune of $40 million uh, series A funding.
7: And why do you think you will be able to connect with those customers better than those big banks that have, uh, have partly invested in you?
2: Well, you know, to be clear with you, you know, this multi-generational wealth gap problem will take an all hands on deck solution. So it'll take uh, collaboration from um, uh, the community to advance racial equality and financial empowerment. So we're really fortunate to have Truist Ventures that led the round um, along with other banks and financial service providers to join forces with us to help solve this problem. So we're clear, our mission is simple. well, to create non-predatory lending products to help recirculate capital into the community and to provide banking capital to deserving borrowers. Um, You know, as well as I do, that the black and Latinx community disproportionately has uh, not had access to building capital, uh, building wealth like in other communities. So we plan to work hard uh, to change that narrative within our black and brown communities.
7: Are you powered by your your own tech that you've developed or, or by that of some of the banks and other partners that have invested in you?
2: So we're we're powered by our, our own tech. We have uh, dev shops that we are, are, are working with. And as I mentioned, we are launching a debit and spending product uh, this summer. Um, and then we will roll into lending products, credit products, and investment products um, in 2022.
7: And you've raised $40 million of, of equity so far. Is, is that right? How, how about more capital needed once you, you fully launch?
2: So yeah, happy to announce we've raised $40 million uh, uh, Series A round of funding. You know, just so you know, that round of funding represents more than just the amount of money raised. It's truly a testament to the mosaic um, of investment partners who are collaborating with us to solve this generational financial problem in the African American and Latinx community. Um, you know, with this funding, we will continue our mission of providing financial empowerment to the underserved communities Uh, racial equality and financial services, and have a greater amount of resource to deliver world-class banking services to our customers. So we feel we are well capitalized to uh, reach our goals.
7: Ryan, thanks so much for joining us and uh, very best of luck with it.
2: Thank you.
0: That's the show for today. Thank you for listening as always. On our rundown tomorrow, Big Tech CEO's are headed back to a virtual Capitol Hill. This time, they're taking on misinformation. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to reach out. We'd love to meet you on Twitter. We're at Squawk CNBC.
5: I'm trying to bring in the millennials like Wolf. Just making a play for the younger viewers.
0: We'll meet you back here
11: tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,